Welcome to the next in a series of Ask a Chair podcasts brought to you by SAEM Rams. Hi, everyone. This is Vitos Corrales from Northwestern University, and welcome to another edition of Ask a Chair with SAEM Rams. Today, we'll be talking to Dr. James Miner at Hennepin County Medical Center. Dr. Miner and I proudly share an alma mater as he and I completed our medical education at Mayo Clinic School of Medicine. Dr. Miner then went on to complete his EM residency at Hennepin County. Dr. Miner is nationally recognized for his research in acute pain management, sedation, monitoring during resuscitation, and healthcare delivery. He is also one of the senior editors for Academic Emergency Medicine and has authored a textbook entitled Emergency Sedation and Pain Management. He has also held the role of research director for the Department of Emergency Medicine at Hennepin County before his current position as Chief of Emergency Medicine at Hennepin County. Hi, Dr. Miner, and thanks so much for having us today. Well, thanks. So you were formerly the research director at University of Minnesota's Department of Emergency Medicine. What do you feel are some of the biggest challenges to research in emergency medicine, as well as medicine in general, being that, you know, emergency medicine during its inception wasn't really considered a research-heavy field? Well, you know, that's a really good question. I personally think our strength and our weakness are the same thing. So I've been in research emergency medicine since I got got out of residency in 1999. And one of the easiest things about doing research in emergency medicine versus any other specialty right now is that there's a lot of really basic, simple questions about how we practice and what we do that haven't been answered yet. So you can publish a paper in JAMA using observational data in emergency medicine. And all those easy questions have been done in most other specialties. So we actually can get more research done without funding than a lot of other specialties can, which is a huge strength and a huge way to advance, but it's our weakness, right? In any other specialty, you can't even get started till you get your funding. And you start with the basics by figuring out how you're going to pay for it. And then you go do your research where we can get halfway into our career and be a world-renowned expert on a topic and never been funded. And it's not that hard to do. And there's really not a lot of specialties that has that problem. So it sets us up. So we have research infrastructure that's unpaid for, essentially using volunteers and our own personal time, which compared to a lot of other specialties, because we work so much in the middle of the night on weekends, we get more week time, you know, day during the time during the week to work. And so we can get a lot done that other specialties can't do without funding. And that's allowed us to make huge advances without research funding. But it's also allowed us to build these fairly large departments really underfunded in terms of our research infrastructure. So it's also our weakness, right? So we're, I'm at the University of Minnesota and in Hennepin. In both places, our infrastructure is not as uh, well-funded as, say, the medicine departments or the surgery departments. And we have to kind of work with them and cooperate with them to get our research going, to get well-funded, even though maybe not the University of Minnesota so much, but at Hennepin, probably the most prominent researchers in the hospital are from emergency medicine. We still don't have that infrastructure that the other departments have because we've been able to get away with, honestly, we just, Dave Plummer's research was he he plugged an ultrasound machine in and put it on somebody, right? And he published that paper and it made him a famous researcher. He didn't even own the ultrasound machine. He borrowed it from cardiology. And that was our start in the 80s. Uh, but essentially, I, I did a bunch of sedation research in the 90s, which essentially amounted to me writing down the numbers on the monitor and reporting them with no funding, no research, anything. Can't do that anymore so much, but it did it allowed us to get too far without structure, infrastructure. And now we're being much more careful in how we build that infrastructure. Yeah, that's uh, a... <laughs> 
it's a fascinating, fascinating anecdote about the ultrasound research and its inception. <laughs> but uh, it truly is both a strength and a weakness. And it, it, I think one of the exciting things about emergency medicine being such a young field is that there's so much out there still to figure out and still to try and perfect and that there's a lot of room for improvement and uh, a lot of room for innovation as well, which is always exciting and always a huge opportunity. On the topic of research, you mentioned that you've done some sedation research. You certainly are, have tons of background in both pain and sedation research. How did you get into that topic area and how did that become your niche? And then I guess I'd also like to hear kind of you elaborate on kind of the current opiate epidemic and how that's affected your research as well. Well, those are really good questions. So how I ended up in research. So I, you know, I started med school as an MD, PhD. And I wanted to study neuroscience. And I got to the PhD part of my training and realized that was not for me. But it gave me more background than I would have had in neuroscience. And I was really fascinated by it. So I got into emergency medicine. I found myself fascinated with chronic pain patients. Just because from a neuroscientific perspective, it was just so interesting. Uh, the way the body would create pain, kind of irregardless of the physiologic damage. So I started studying how we measure it and how we describe it. And my undergraduate background was in anthropology, and it's hard to put together neuroscience and anthropology. When it comes to pain, so much of pain is how people describe it to us, and so much of how people describe stuff to us is kind of their culture, their background. I ended up having to use all my previous background training before I even started medicine to start asking questions where I was trying to look at how pain was expressed differently, but how people would describe it based on their culture and how we interpreted that medically. And it was really a lot of fun. Uh, but the thing that really got me started on pain research, so I have to give complete credit where credit is due, is there was once this publication called The Resident Reporter. And it doesn't exist anymore. Essentially, they would pay for a resident to go to ASAP in exchange for you writing a review article based on one of the famous lectures you went to at ASAP. And you were assigned the lectures. And they, it was all EM residents, and I'm sure it was drug company sponsored. That's why it doesn't exist anymore. I don't really remember how it happened. But anyway, my second year of residency, I got sent to ASAP on this resident reporter scholarship or whatever. And I got assigned to write a review article on, on Bob Hochberger's lecture on pain management, which I don't know if he still gives, but he probably still gives. It was an incredibly good lecture. So anyway, I sat through that thing, wrote up a review lecture on his a review paper on his incredible lecture on pain. And by the end of it, I was so fascinated by the subject I've been studying ever since. So he gets full credit for starting me on that line of research. I was trying to set up background research so I could have outcome measures for pain research. We don't have any outcome measures. We couldn't measure pain. We couldn't measure my hypoxia. Didn't, it wasn't very good. And it's a whole other subject and why we couldn't use hypoxia as a bad outcome. So I thought maybe I'd look at end tidal CO2 monitors. But the problem is, the data was all over the place when I put on people getting opioids IV in the ED. So I wanted to look at a model where somebody was normal and it became abnormal and back to normal. So sedation was just an easier model to study. So I started monkeying around with that. And then Michelle Byros, who was my mentor here at, uh, at Hennepin, and really, as I'm getting at, you really can't get anywhere without mentors. So without Bob Hopper getting me started on the subject and Michelle Byros teaching me how to do research, I would be nowhere. But basically, she was studying head injury research and said, hey, that end tidal monitor you're messing around with in pain patients might be able to tell me when a, when a patient who's sedated, I mean, when a patient who's head injured, how head injured they are. She did head injury research. So I took the model and started studying head injury, but same idea. We need people who are normal, became abnormal, went back. 
So we looked at it in a sedation model. So all my sedation research for the first 10 years, I was trying to establish outcome measures for pain and head injury studies. And about 10 years in, all of a sudden, I realized I'd mostly published on procedural sedation and had gotten very little progress done on pain or head injury because we still didn't have good outcomes. And then I started to realize, well, actually, I'm studying sedation here. So I started studying sedation a little more purposely at that point. But it was uh, mostly, it was kind of trial and error. I, you know, I do exper- you do experiments and try to design an experiment that's going to work and come up with outcome measures that are going to work. And sometimes the journey of trying to answer a question ends up being my research. I mean, essentially, my research was trying to develop a good pain medicine study, and I still don't have a good pain, me- pain outcome measure to use. You know, if you look at pain trials, we essentially still can't tell the difference between Tylenol and an opioid, right? And there might not be a very big difference, but there's some difference, right? But we can't measure it because we don't have a measurement device that's capable of detecting the dis- difference. And everyone's tried to study it. We've tried to come up with differences, but really we've gotten nowhere in 20 years. We can't compare one pain agent to another. We can compare it to placebo. We can compare bad outcomes, but in terms of whether or not it worked, we haven't gotten past the point that pain really still comes down to what somebody tells you. And that's just too imprecise for a research measurement. We'll get there, but we're not there yet. There's a lot more work to do. <laughs> <laughs> so you're telling me that that smiley chart on the side of the patient's room on what, what what's your pain on a scale of one to 10 is. I, you know, I love the smiley chart, but if you just use smiley charts, trying to figure out if ibuprofen work better than Tylenol, it doesn't get you any, I mean, it just doesn't get you anywhere. <laughs> sure. But if the person says they feel better, what's the difference? It's just hard for research. Clinically, it's great. I mean, what more could you use clinically? Now the opioid, the opiate, problem we're having in our society is a really, really important point because it's, uh, there's a lot of reasons it happened. And most of the reasons were people were trying to do the right thing. So when I was just starting out right before I finished med school, the world health organization said the pain's a crisis and it should be treated and it should be treated equitably. Everybody should get treated the same. So people started looking at this and Knox Todd looked at it uh, when he was at Emory. And then we looked at it at a bunch of hospitals in the PEMI study a few years later. And we found that we didn't treat people equitably when it came to pain. We found that we gave less pain medicines to some people than others. Emory, they, uh, when, when they did the study there, he found that black patients got less pain medicine than white patients. When we did the same study here at Hennepin, we actually found our American Indian patients got less pain medicines than other patients. And I, a lot of people studied this, we realized this isn't right. We got to make sure we're giving pain meds to people. Now, some of that got translated to give everybody more, uh, which is probably more fair, but reckless in that we didn't understand some of the long-term implications of that. Opioid addiction from opioid treatment is not new. I mean, morphine's been out since 1820. The end of the Civil War, almost every injured vet who went home was addicted to morphine when they got home. So this isn't a new problem. It's the problem we haven't fixed. The problem seemed to get a lot worse recently for a number of reasons, but one is there was an increased attention starting in 1992 on pain, and then increased attention in the late 90s on disequity in the treatment of pain, and the default being to treat more, not less. Now, my area of research is really focused on acute pain in the ED. I haven't re- really done any outpatient research. So in terms of specific work I do, this hasn't affected me much, except that I get asked about it a lot more. So I probably used to just talk about how to get pain under control and what the long-term bad effects of it are. Now I talk a lot more about how the addiction works and what we need to do to avoid that. So it has lended a lot to it, but I think 
for me personally, what this says is we know very little about pain. It's the oldest drug in modern medicine. I mean, really the first drug allopathic licensed doctors had to work with was morphine. And we still don't know enough about it. And maybe it's because we had such an effective drug 200 years ago, no one's bothered to study it enough. But here we're sitting in 2020, you know, 200 years after morphine was developed for normal use. We still really don't know how much pain you have to relieve to make somebody do better than worse or what the real risk of somebody getting addicted in or how many doses they have to get before they're physiologically dependent. We guess and we're coming close to some answers, but consider the risk our patients are under. We know a lot less than we do about any other subject in terms of treatment. So I see this as a call for us to study pain more and more effectively rather than uh, maybe we need to back off and not treat pain. I think we need to figure out what causes it and how to make it better safely. It's easy to say, well, I'm not giving more pain medicines. People get addicted. Uh, but people don't do well when we don't treat them for pain either. And when we, we also know that when we don't treat pain, we're more likely to do it to somebody we're biased against. And so those are dangerous ground that nobody wants to, nobody wants to be a biased physician. Uh, nobody wants to be unfair in their practice. Nobody wants to make somebody suffer. But we don't want to make an addict either. So there's, I don't think there's an easy way out where we can just say, boom, there's a, here's the fix. We're not going to use this anymore. We're not going to use that anymore. We're not doing this anymore. I think the question is to realize this is high stakes area of medicine and a place for us to really put our heads together and think about the best way to do it and have an open mind. So it's good to realize that uh, probably a lot of what we're doing right now will get made fun of as ridiculous 100 years from now. And none of us know what those things are yet, but if something stops working, you, you don't want to be too slow to give it up, you know? <laughs> Because <laughs> at some point we'll get made fun of for it, I'm sure, by our history. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, without a doubt. That's like a, kind of an interesting conundrum about uh, pain and opiate medications. This is one of the toughest things we do. I mean, it, it's a rare emergency physician who we ask them, especially when you're about 10 years out of residency. Somebody says, what was the toughest case you took care of today? The really, really sick patients get easier and easier the farther you are into your career. But moderate to severe pain in a person who's had a couple of experience with opioids in the past, the risk benefits of that and coming up with a, a therapeutic plan that the patient's happy, happy with, it's one of the biggest challenges. And there isn't a cookbook. This is how you can get it done right every time. And when you fall into that cookbook, you end up doing things where either you undertreat people in a biased fashion or you're overtreating and causing people, you know, leading to further cases of addiction. It's like a one in 18 risk. Anytime you give someone an opioid, they'll still be using it a year later. It's pretty high. It's higher than the chance that they'll have back pain a year later if you did nothing, you know, for, for simple mechanical back pain. So that's it. Yeah, that's incredibly high. To think too of the quality of life improvement that both treating pain can provide, but also the quality of life improvement if you can avoid addiction. Uh, there's clearly two areas of, of sizable impact that you could make with you know, better understanding of both pain and kind of the addiction to pain medications and being able to navigate that more readily. It's come a long way. You know, at Hennepin here, we made a uh, opioid policy, maybe 2014. So we we're always on the same page because we wanted to try to eliminate bias really. It's one of the things we were worried about is we we're worried about opioid use. We we're worried about what's it's so easy to say, oh, this guy's a straight shooter. You totally make sense. And when you say that, it tends to be someone who looks and acts just like you. And when you say, I don't know about this person, it tends to be someone who's a lot different than you. We're like, we gotta be really careful. We need a clear policy that's the same and isn't led by biases. So we came up with a very frank and very clear policy we posted around our department. And the number of people coming into our department to seek drugs plummeted 10% of what it was even five years ago. So part of it was we were being inconsistent. 
So we were generating difficult patients with drug problems because some of our docs would give too much. Some of our docs would never give it all. So the patients would change their stories and come in frequently until they got what they liked. Once we got everyone on the same page, things got a lot better. So some of these problems, it's just by paying attention to it alone, you can fix it. You don't need to you know, solve the crisis or figure out every single piece of science that has been neglected for the last 200 years. Sometimes it's just, well, why don't we all just make sure we do the same thing, which really wasn't a lot of work. For the amount of difficult patients that we, you know, home where they were safe and not getting, you know, not arguing with us about whether or not they should go home with pain meds, it took very little time to develop our opioid policy. I think most ERs have done that at this point, but it wasn't, that was not a scientific breakthrough, but it was a much bigger impact than a lot of scientific breakthroughs. Sounds good. Clearly, you're very involved in research still. And then you also now obviously have these administrative duties as being the chair of your department. What advice do you have regarding balancing professional responsibilities? It's really hard. It's really hard to be a researcher and anything else. Because research takes so much of your time and energy and focus. You can be a researcher and a great clinician. And I recommend it. (laughs) Once you start adding administrative work, it gets in the way of being a researcher. There's no way around it. And I think like many people in who are department chairs, like me, they ended up here not because they really wanted to be a department chair. There are people out there that that's their goal. And that's cool if that's your goal. It's, a really, it's an exciting, fun job. But I would say a lot more of us were worried that somebody else would get the job who would screw up everything they'd worked so hard to make. So I became the chair so I could make sure that we could still do great research and teaching here. Not that somebody else wouldn't have, but I was worried about it because I'd spent so much of my life building a research infrastructure. All of a sudden, I'm like, I got to make sure this keeps going. And so I got way more into the admin end of it than the actual doing of it. And I have to admit, a lot more of my research now is mentoring somebody who's getting started on their project than my own. I mean, I... My lab has gone from being busy five days a week to getting used a couple of days a month and mostly shared with a lot of other people. I think that's how that's common once you take on an administrative role. But at the same time, if I hadn't taken this role, somebody had turned us in a different direction, I might have had to, you know, I might have something else might have gone a different way. But that's the if you if you want to do research, you really have to focus on research for a while. You can't really do it part-time. There was a time when you could. When I first got started in emergency medicine, I didn't know I didn't know if I wanted to do research all the time or get more involved with education of residents or get more involved with kind of the administration of our department. And research just kept falling in my lap. It was easy. It was going well. So I just went with it. But I also had mentors, Louis Ling and Michelle Barros, protecting me. And every time I got distracted by an educational or administrative pull, they'd focus me back in and say, no, sit your research project. Let somebody else be on that residency review committee. Let somebody else do this. Let somebody else go on the you know, quality committee or whatever else. Because I kept getting pulled and I'm glad because I think if I hadn't stayed so focused, now I'm stuck. Honestly, I get pulled in every single thing our department does, uh, like every department chair. But it's okay now because I'm 25 years in and I kind of, I think I, it's easier to control it than it would have been the first five, 10 years of my career. One thing I would add though, is when, when, you're, when somebody getting started in their career, so Rams is everybody, right? So you're getting started and you're thinking about academics. You know, you, you do need to focus down. You do need to kind of decide which direction. 
the days of somebody being really good at education and research and clinical and focusing on all three are gone. But that's how all the, I mean, everybody 10 years older than me, that's what they were. They're famous clinicians, they're famous researchers, and they're famous teachers. But the demands and the amount of training it takes to get good at those things is really expanded over time. But you don't have to pick right away. I talk to a lot of people in their second and third years, and they're like, they've got like a six to 18 month horizon for goals. And you really need like a five, 10, 15 year one. Because you kind of, there's a, there's a mix of where your talents and passions lie and where your opportunities lie. And you have to find where those two things go over. Because you might, you can't want something bad enough if there's no opportunity there and get it done. But if you just fall into something because it's an easy opportunity and you hate it, you're going to be miserable and it's not going to, you're never going to be good at it either. So you kind of have to not nose your way through, but you know, you want to have a long-term picture in your mind, but you have to be flexible about what that is, what's going to get you there. And I didn't get started saying I'm going to be a, I'm going to be a sedation researcher by any means. I knew I was going to do clinical research, but I actually didn't know what subject I'd be studying until way in. And I never thought I'd become a department leader. I used to look with pity on our department's leaders because they worked long hours and they always had to go to meetings and stuff. I'm like, you'll never catch me doing that. And here I am. Now I don't mind it. But I think if I decided I wanted to do this and tried to force it, it probably wouldn't happen at the same time. And I would have hated it because... I would have to spend the first 20 of my career. I got to skip those meetings for the first 20 years of my career. And let me tell you, I'm more <laughs> I'm a better suited now that I have done. <laughs> it wouldn't have gone as well. <laughs> well played. This question is even more pertinent now, uh, given the recent events, but what are some of the biggest challenges that you see facing emergency medicine? And how do we turn these challenges into successes and not hurdles? Well, you know, the, the most obvious one is we've had this COVID pandemic. And our volumes dropped off like a third. It hadn't been. I'm sure it's the same at most places. We don't have enough patients anymore. And it seemed busier at work, right? We're all running into work, covering up with PPE, and seeing some very sick patients with COVID, which is nerve-wracking because you don't want to catch it, and they're dying, and we don't know much about the disease. And then otherwise, the department's dead. It's a strange April and May this year. Now we're starting to head back to normal. Our critical care volumes are back to normal or you know, maybe our total volume's a little bit down, so it's a little slower, but not slower with sick patients, so not that you can feel the difference. So everything's kind of getting back to normal. We wear a lot more protective equipment when we work. But what the long-term effect of that change in volume is going to be, I don't know. Is, you know. Are there too many of us all of a sudden? Do we need more of us because you can be more sick patients? I don't, I don't really know what's going to – I mean, I've, I've been in a lot of discussions with a lot of people who know a lot more about the business end of emergency medicine and predicting volumes and predicting you know billing and all that stuff and they're they're throwing their hands up there saying i don't know what's gonna happen so if they don't know nobody knows so we have some smart people in emergency medicine you know the business end of what we do very well so that's a big up in the air question i get a lot of questions like i want to go into academics a year are there going to be any jobs and i say well there might be a lot more and there might be some less i don't know because it brings us to research one of our biggest challenges is that emergency medicine isn't well funded in research uh, honestly for our department to keep our research, because we need to do research 24 seven because it's emergency medicine, right? So we built this cadre of research coordinators that are available 24 seven, but I don't have enough grants to keep them busy. So essentially do research for hire for all the other departments, for neurology, for surgery, for medicine, because they don't have anyone that wants to work on nights and weekends. So we sort of hire our research infrastructure out. It's worked very well for us. In fact, 
what it's done is brought us into so many other departments, grants and research processes as investigators. Cause at first we were just, you know, hired guns and later we actually became investigators that now we've a lot more funded researchers because we're instead of trying to start from scratch and getting, you know, have a bunch of R01 funded researchers out of nothing. We've got a whole bunch of us as co-investigators and, you know, we've got, we've got some of us are primarily funded, but our average research in our department funding is a co-I for another department. But that's still our biggest challenge in the world of academics is just growing that infrastructure and history. But there's a lot up in the air right now. The government funding has not gotten better in the last few years. But then the best funding we've had in the last, at least for our department, the best research funding we've had in the last 10 years has all been related to COVID. So now we have more research than we can do. We're hiring coordinators like MAD. We're thinking of new research projects to do our poor research. Everyone who does research in our department as the focus of their careers is buried since March between writing grants and accomplishing all the research trials we're in, which I wouldn't have predicted from this. What is that going to peter out in six months? If, you know, if a vaccine's out next summer, will all this research money disappear and we'll be back behind where we were before because now we're studying something that doesn't exist anymore? I don't know. Those are their big challenges. The other challenge is, you know, we play an, an integral role in society as the interface between hospital and medicine and some of the parts of our society that are neglected. Right. So we talk about things like people being killed or injured when they're being arrested or drug addiction or you name it, poverty. We see this in the ED every day and we need to figure out, can we just sit and take care of it when it comes to us? Or are we part of the solution? And again, that's one of those, I don't know the answer. Is it, you know, can we try to fix the problem while we take care of these people? Or does that then change who we are and make it harder for people to come to us if we politicize ourselves, right? We, everyone needs to feel safe coming to the ED, but if we, we pick a side in a political argument, do we jeopardize that? I don't know. It's a big challenge. It's a, we've been, I think in every city, we've been thinking about that, right? Where, what's our role here? Are we, are we, is it okay for us to just fix the, to put band-aids on or should we be pointing out the greater issues and taking a lead? But does doing that hurt our, uh, hurt, our position as a, as a neutral ground that anybody can come to to be taken care of. I don't, I don't know the answer. I'm throwing out all these incredibly difficult problems. I don't know the answer to So there's no shortage of challenges. So I don't think, I think one of the best things about our careers in emergency medicine is that there's definitely no room to be bored. There's so much to do and so many important things to cure and fix and jump into that. Uh, I think if somebody finds themselves bored in emergency medicine, they just need to step back for a second and realize, you know, it's just because I'm not noticing these things. It's not because there's nothing to do. We've got our work set out for us for as long as I can see into the future. Absolutely. And while there are a lot of challenges, I think one of the things that we all like about emergency medicine is it's got a long history of being a group of problem solvers. And so I think there's always a lot of excitement around being innovative and trying to tackle those problems. And so not only is it an opportunity, but also I think kind of keep some of the excitement that we all come into emergency medicine for alive. <laughs> But how can residents and younger faculty position themselves essentially to rise into leadership and kind of progress their careers? It's a really good question. I think, you know, that when you start your career out, opportunities come at you. And you have a lot of opportunities to, you know, a lot of things you can say yes to, a lot of things you can say no to. And it's really hard to know what to do. And I think when you're first getting started out, the most important thing is to actually have an open mind about what you're working on. 
say yes to as many opportunities as you can until you start to find stuff that isn't what you're heading into. I know that sounds kind of maybe counter to some advice that I see some people get, but I think if you get, if you have a little bit longer window in how far forward you're looking to plan your career, if you stay open to opportunity and just kind of try stuff out, I think you can get a much better feel for what you're going to be passionate for and good at because it kind of takes both. And there are things that there are things that you may really want to do and you may be bad at that you can fix. And there's things that you may really want to do that you're bad at that it's not worth the effort to try to get good at. Like for me, when I got started, I was a, nobody liked my writing. I thought I was a very good writer, but I got the feedback that it wasn't great. <laughs> nobody liked my writing. Now I write a ton right now. And the only reason I can write a ton right now, having, after having started as a guy that regularly got feedback that his writing was bad, is I wrote a lot. I just kept writing. And it, I don't know, maybe a lot of people still don't like my writing, but people will publish it now. Whereas when I started my first paper at Academic Emergency Medicine, Adam Singer was the decision editor. And he had to do so many rewrites of that paper that I, I lost count. But it, you know, his patience working with me to get that thing written, I will never uh, forget. But it was not, uh, hey, just make a couple of little changes. It was essentially he had to rewrite the paper with me <laughs> under his very close advice. So it was publishable. And from there, I've come a long way. But, you know, that I didn't take that as an opportunity. Hey, I should give up. I suck at writing. I said, hey, I should take this advice and not get mad at Adam Singer for making me rewrite this 10 times, but say, hey, thanks for teaching me how to write papers so I can be a researcher someday. That was maybe a moment in my career that I could have gone another way and said, well, screw this. I'm going to a different journal. I'm going to work with this guy. Rather than saying, wait a minute, here's a great opportunity. Now, granted, I had good advice from Louis Ling and Shell Bio saying, take that advice. It's a guy who's really good at writing, who's willing to work with you. But I think you just have to stay kind of open to what the opportunities are going to be and what's an opportunity. Sometimes that's a barrier, right? I have another paper I wrote on entitled CO2 that I submitted to 20 different journals over six years and never got published. I realized I should have given up the first one and I should have. It was a lot of wasted time. I didn't gain anything from that. What's the difference between the two? I'm not sure. But one was a good use of my time and advanced my career. And one was a big old roadblock that it took me way too long to notice uh, that I wasn't getting anywhere on. <laughs> you just have to stay, I think you just have to kind of stay in tune with, with what you're doing and where you're headed and what feels right for you. Okay, if you don't like something, it's not going to go well. And you know, you can, I see it all the time. I'll be in a committee meeting at SAM and somebody in the room just looks miserable. And I feel like going over and saying, you don't have to be here. There are other ways to advance from your career from being on this committee. And I mean, I even feel like sometimes I say like everyone in the room thinks the meeting is stupid, but we all know it's important that we're here and there's something we have to do. I mean, there's important work we're getting done, even though this is kind of boring. If you really don't like it, you should, you know, it's hard to give up when something isn't your thing. It's also hard to readjust your attitude when it, when it needs to be. I don't know. I, I'm not giving very good advice, except to say that, uh, it's really important to just keep an open mind about what's going to be your future and what, what a roadblock is and what a advantage is. I'll give you a quick story. I know I'm going too long. We have one of our grads, Chell Lindgren, Lindgren is a resident at Hennepin and he's an astronaut now. He was up in the space station, done all the cool stuff. He always wanted to be an astronaut. So he, when he, and he told me this story, so I'm paraphrasing. So you have to ask Chell if you want the right one, but it's meaningful to me because when he was at the Air Force Academy, he wanted to be an astronaut. He was told, you can't be an astronaut. You have asthma. So he had some asthma. So don't even bother. So he said, fine, whatever. I'll go to med school. In hindsight, he knows that 
to go straight into flight school and become a pilot and become an astronaut is nearly impossible. You have to compete with super athletes with perfect vision and no medical problems who are geniuses. He went to med school. We eventually figured out they actually didn't really have asthma. He eventually made his way into a you know a flight medicine program fellowship after he graduated, and he got on the space team and got up in the got up in the in space. I mean, he was up in up in the uh, space station for a while, and now he's still an astronaut. And he pointed out that he never would have made it as a pilot. He only could have made it as a doctor. And he only became a doctor because he told he was, that door got shut and he told he can't be an astronaut. So I just think about that, that sometimes being told you can't do something, that's opening the door to what you can do. And it may get you to the same place. And it's all attitude. Like he never gave up. He just tried something different. I think we all need to do that in our careers. We all need to be ready to get shut down and not take it as the end. It's fantastic advice. And, uh... Thank you. Do you have any other, I mean, that, that was superb advice. Do you have any other advice or wisdom for our listeners who are largely residents and medical students? No, I would just I feel like that was a perfect antidote to end on, <laughs> yeah. to be honest. <laughs> Early in my career, I got the advice to focus more on positive things that are happening to you and the things you're grateful for than the irritating things that happening to you and the things you're angry about. And it makes the exact same plate in front of you seem a lot more palatable. And that's just the only background advice I'd give. Just, I mean, you don't have to be, you don't have to paint a smiley face on everything, but if you can, everything's got good and bad. And if you spend more energy focusing on the good than on the bad, things go a lot better. Even if this, even with the exact same things thrown at you, focus on what you're grateful for and what you're, and what's good for you. Well, excellent. Thank you for taking the time to chat with us. Uh, we covered a lot of different great things. Thank you so much, Dr. Miner, for taking the time to chat with us. We greatly appreciate it. Always good to talk to a male grad. There's not a ton of us. <laughs> there aren't. <laughs> Small class size. But uh, yeah, thanks so much. Thanks.